The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Are you looking to grow your career in solar tech? Aurora is hiring across a lot of different roles. Aurora Solar is the leader in solar design and sales software with over 5 million projects designed in the platform to date. And it is looking for people to fill roles in customer success, marketing, sales, operations, and more. You can see open roles and apply to join Aurora. Voted one of the best places to work in 2021 at aurorasolar.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. More utilities, cities, states, and now maybe even the federal government are striving for 100% clean electricity. And nowhere are the stakes and the complexity of this goal clearer than in California. This week, gauging America's energy transition through the lens of the world's fifth biggest economy. LA Times journalist Sammy Roth is here with us to talk about California's fast, sometimes messy, and still evolving plans. Plus, a look at the details of Biden's $2 trillion package to reconstruct the economy one seawall, EV charging station, and transmission project at a time. Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. Hey, Catherine. Hey, how are you doing this beautiful spring day? Good. How was Easter? It was great. I'm still in the mountains. And so, yeah, really lovely experience watching the sunrise. Catherine is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. And Catherine and I are joined, as I said in the intro, by Sammy Roth. Sammy is a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. He is there in L.A. Hey, Sammy. Hey, Stephen. Good to be here. He writes the newsletter Boiling Point for the LA Times, which should be on the subscription list of any self-respecting energy and climate devotee. Highly recommend it. And we're going to unpack some of the themes that he's writing about in that newsletter. You are also the co-host of The Hatch, a rewatch podcast (laughs) about the famed television series Lost. And as someone who used the pandemic to finally watch the show all at once, I was delighted to have this companion series. I, I appreciate the plugs. Um, if, if folks want to sign up for Boiling Point, that's latimes.com slash Boiling Point, where they can do that. And, and we will be out with our fifth season of uh, The Hatch soon as well. So uh, all the Lost fans out there. But no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Longtime listener to the Energy Gang and uh, excited to join you folks today. What are you obsessed with more, Lost or climate change? You know, it's, they're, they're just different scales. You know, no, no real point of comparison there. <laughs> well, if we're talking about scale, there's no bigger scale the energy transition than in California. California is going fast and furious, and it is one of the world's biggest economies. So the transition there has huge impacts. It is the proving ground for every major change that the Biden team wants to accelerate nationally. 100% carbon-free electricity, fossil fuel phase-outs, climate-resilient grid hardening. The state wants to make 100% of retail electricity sales carbon-free by 2045. And to do that, it'll need to match its best year ever for renewable energy installations 25 more years in a row. It's going to be about $4.5 billion in yearly spending. And as we pointed out last week, it'll also need new tech to balance the grid and phase out gas plants. That includes extraordinary amounts of energy storage that can be relied on for days. California is moving fast. Is there such a thing as too fast? Now, Sammy, you've been writing about two new major reports, one from California energy regulators, one from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, that assess possible outcomes for the state. And they both conclude that these goals are achievable, but not without some complexities, which we'll discuss. Uh, You asked the chair of the California Energy Commission, is there a risk of going 
too fast. I'm curious, what did he say? Yeah, his answer was really interesting to me. And and this is a question that I ask because this is really the tension that I'm seeing play out in California. I mean, on the one hand, you have these reports, as you mentioned, from, you know, NREL and the state agencies saying you need, um, you know, you need to go as, as fast as we've ever gone before, but for the next 25 years and add in all of these other technologies. And at the same time, you've had this, um, in a lot of ways, this real reticence from, you know, from the governor and from the Public Utilities Commission and various agencies to to move too quickly, at least for the next few years. Um, you know, we had these rolling blackouts last August. Uh, we're extending shutdown deadlines for gas plants as a result of that. There's worry about, you know, sending electricity rates up too quickly, especially as we electrify transportation and buildings and you know, there's worry about relying on the electric grid when we're having these these wildfire safety shutoffs. And so, you know, I, I asked this question of the chair of the Energy Commission, um, you know, is there such a thing as moving too fast? And his answer was basically, you know, he thinks the the risks of moving uh, too slow are greater than the risks of moving too fast just because of the climate imperative, because of the record fires we've been having and managed retreat that we're talking about on the coast and, and all of those things. But at the same time, he did say, yeah, there's there's a risk to moving too fast. There's a risk that you overspend and you create this blowback if rates go up too fast. There's a risk that, you know, if you do even a, you know, screw up even a little bit on the grid and, you know, have more of these rolling blackout types events, that there's a, you know, there's a political blowback as well to the, the climate work. Um, and I think this is definitely something on, on Governor Newsom's mind. I mean, he's facing a recall election right now. It looks like that's going to be on the ballot. The economy has been pretty bad, obviously, during the pandemic. And so I think there, I, I think there's, you know, some of this is just, you know, political, you know, worrying about, you know, are people going to be mad at me? But part of it is a real concern over do we, you know, do we inadvertently, um, you know, hurt the climate goals themselves by screwing things up just a little bit and then people turn against it. Catherine, what do you think about that framing? Is there such a thing as too fast as it pertains to California? Yeah, I mean, they have these huge goals. It's to be 100% carbon-free by 2050, uh, 60% renewable by 2030. And what that means, based on the California Energy Commission study, which they have to do every four years to comply with the bill, the legislation, it's like 2.1 gigawatts of utility solar and a gigawatt of wind every single year for 25 years and two gigawatts of energy storage every year. So it's a lot they have to do. Um, And I reached out to another commissioner of the California Energy Commission, Andrew McAllister, and he said, you know, we're trying to balance this reliability issue that Sammy mentioned, which is really job one, decarbonization and also cost. Um, And Sammy mentioned that too, as that's being a big thing. And what Commissioner McAllister said is there there are a couple things that are going to be mitigating. One is energy efficiency, that if you can invest more early on in efficiency in buildings, agriculture, industry sectors, that that then lowers the need um, and and defray some of the cost moving forward and the scale for the rest of the challenges also creates a ton of jobs. And the other thing is innovation on the grid edge. And I think, you know, I work on this a lot where I always say like, let's get to 80% and then worry about the rest because guess what? There's innovation right now happening on the grid edge that will allow for more flexible load use. And I think that's going to be really important. So I think we they have to be mindful and thoughtful about how they're doing, but I, I think we have to move quickly. 
Two, two things about what Catherine just said, which is which is all stuff that I'm hearing as well. You know, on the point about you know efficiency and and flexible demand in particular, one one interesting thing that came out of the you know the rolling outages that we had um, last summer was that there there was a really significant um, you know response as uh, not just from existing you know demand response programs, but just from the public messaging that went out, flex alerts, you know, asking people you know please cut back in the evenings. I mean, we I don't know the numbers offhand, but we got really big amounts of just. Um, you know, flexible, flexible load shifting just by asking people for it. So it, it definitely seems like there's pretty big potential there if you could get even a, you know, a, a fraction of that on a regular basis in a in a formalized you know way that you could count on. Um, interestingly, the you know as as with everything else, there's been hesitance from the regulators on that because they're worried about you know um, to what extent are we really going to be able to rely on it in an emergency? They they like to be extra extra cautious, and so there's been debating between the you know the OmConnect and the other DR providers and and the PUC here about um, you know how quickly they can move on that. The other thing, just on the big numbers that Catherine was, was referencing, you know the the two plus gigs of solar and a gig of wind and and of you know two of battery storage. In in the the study that the state did, those those are all backloaded, so they're averages. But the way that they're assuming that this is going to work out is actually you know much smaller development over the next few years, and then you know bigger and bigger amounts, you know much larger than those numbers post you know twenty thirty post twenty thirty five, and so. There, there's been a lot of debate as well between the you know the renewable developers and and the you know the state regulators over this of you know can we really afford to just wait and backload this why are we not building now when you know when tax credits are available when we can get a head start when we can potentially set ourselves up for a 2035 target which is what Joe Biden is is talking about so it you know in, in some ways maybe it's easier if you get the demand side right but in some ways maybe it's harder if you need to be moving now and you're not moving now yeah Sammy I wanted to ask you about that too because you were writing about some things that aren't happening fast enough. Um, There's a lot of talk of solar and wind and some of storage, but less on long duration storage. Certainly they look like they want to get a gigawatt of long duration storage in place, but like offshore wind and geothermal and new transmission, distributed energy. It seems like there are a lot of other resources that could be brought to bear that maybe aren't getting as much attention. No, I think that's totally right. I mean, there's been pretty widespread agreement among people studying this stuff in California and the West for several years now that, yeah, you're going to need, you know, if not each one of those things necessarily, then some combination of them. But like with, you know, with, with pump storage in particular, you know, for instance, there's been this this one big, uh, you know, project that's been proposed that would be like, um, that would be, uh, gosh, more than a gigawatt, I think, um, that's out in the desert that's been controversial for environmental and water use and conservation reasons. And, you know whether it's that or something else, it just hasn't really gone anywhere. And and both the NREL study and the statewide includes pump storage. I mean, both studies include you know geothermal. Um, you know, some in more significant amounts than others. They both include. Uh, well, interestingly, the LA study doesn't include offshore wind, which I was a little surprised by. But the you know the statewide they're assuming ten gigawatts of offshore and. And meanwhile, the transmission planning for offshore wind isn't happening at all. Um, you know, none of that has been built out yet. We're still looking at, you know, years and years away. There was actually a bill in the state legislature that, you know, would have required planning for at least the first three gigawatts of offshore wind. And it looked like that was uh, that was tabled this week and, and set aside and, and, you know, doesn't appear to be moving anywhere right now. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is that reluctance I'm talking about. I mean, people are worried about costs and about do you need to do this stuff yet? Can we just wait until later and... Um, you know, yeah, we're going to need it. And it's just a question of, is it going to happen soon enough? So I was reading through this California Energy Commission report modeling out what this 100% target will look like. And I was struck by what was not modeled. Uh, and and, and they, they left out a ton of technology, some of which are 
being talked about extensively. So they left out new in-state nuclear. No real surprises there. It's really hard to build a new nuclear power plant. But they did leave out drop-in renewable fuels produced by you know, bioenergy sources or from green hydrogen. I know that there's a lot of talk about what to do in the last, you know, 10 or 20 percent of decarbonization and renewable fuels um, are, are are certainly seen by some as an option. They left those out. They left out carbon capture and sequestration for natural gas plants, new small hydro stations, new concentrating solar power. Not a huge surprise for new concentrating solar power because it's a lot more expensive to build those facilities. And there are a lot of conflicts over land use in the desert for those facilities and no new large hydroelectric generation. So they're leaving a bunch of stuff on the table. Uh, I wonder what you make of what is excluded versus what is included, Sammy. Yeah, I asked the Energy Commission about that. And, and basically the response I got from uh, the, the chair, David Hochschild, is that um, you know, they were trying to focus on stuff that they feel reasonably confident about right now and that they, you know, it's not set in stone and that they expect it'll get easier for, you know, various reasons, some of the stuff that you um, that you mentioned. Um, one, one thing that's related that I think is really interesting is, at least in their core scenarios, they're still assuming a pretty, you know, significant chunk of capacity coming from gas to help um, fill stuff out at the margins. I mean, it's it's this whole complicated interpretation of uh, the, the bill SB 100 requiring this where they're interpreting it as only retail sales, so you don't have to count line loss and you don't have to think about unspecified imports. And so, you know, you can really, they think, get to, you know, 90 percent, uh, you know, zero carbon and then do the rest with gas and still be complying with the law. They they also studied scenarios where, where you do get rid of the gas, but they haven't committed to that. So I I mean, I think the attitude I got from them was basically we, we'd like to get to a point where we can do it about gas and mix in some of those, you know, developing technologies that you were just talking about, Stephen. But at, at the moment, they're not, uh, they're not committing to it. And there are folks who are unhappy about that. So what does the CEC and other modelers make of the ability to phase out gas? I mean, aside from this, like a, a small amount of gas that could still be left out on the system, can we reasonably reduce the state's reliance on natural gas plants uh, th- throughout the next decade or so? I, I mean, yeah. So the, the, this, the state report, you know, did find that. I mean, to the extent that they have gas left for, you know, like 5 or 10% of burn, it's it's really for those, you know, peak, you know, evening summer hours and other times when the grid is super, super strained, not like a, you know, not a main resource like it is now. But interestingly, the NREL uh, study that they did for City of Los Angeles, um, they, they found that you could you could really get out of, get out of gas um you know, even by 2035 potentially, and and mostly by 2030. What what was different about the NREL study? It was th- this was a much more, um, you know, a much more detailed look at the reliability question. I mean, they did you know hour by hour modeling across a you know a range of uh, you know weather and climate scenarios and demand scenarios. Um, you know, using a supercomputer and a big team, and it took three or four years. I mean, it was a much deeper you know look at the reliability question than the state did. Um, and yeah, I mean, they make some assumptions. They, you know, they have a big chunk of, you know, a big chunk of renewable hydrogen in there. They're assuming that that's going to end up being, you know, feasible and cost effective to help phase out the gas. Um, but, it, you know, assuming that stuff happens in a way that is, you know, reasonably expectable, I guess. Yeah, they they found you could do, you know, 98% carbon free by 2030 and 100% by 2035. And, you know, in, in fact, perhaps even have somewhat better reliability than we have today. Catherine, what do you make of this NREL report on what L.A. could possibly do? 
Yeah, so I talked to the head of the study, Jacqueline Cochran from NREL, and um, LA is really interesting. It is a little bit of an island. It's its own balancing authority, so it is responsible solely responsible for its own reliability. It is its own utility, so it has complete control over all of their planning, operations, et cetera. They're not under the jurisdiction. Their rate design isn't under the jurisdiction of the Public Utility Commission in California. They're not part of a larger power market. So you know, there's a bigger power market, um, the, the energy imbalance market in the West, that allows imports of clean energy from the Western states into California, and they're not part of that. Um, and they also have a mu- municipal utility. So their their construct is a little different than, say, a lot of PG&E service territory or Southern California Edison. So it's a little bit different, and you're able to do this as, as if you're on an island. Um, what Jacqueline said is that it was very community-driven approach. So what they were trying to solve for was totally driven. I mean, they were solving for reliability and trying to get to 100%, but they had a community advisory council that was very much a part of the process of retirees, environmentalists, school groups, people on fixed income. And when they worked with these groups, they could really dive into what are the vulnerabilities. And this is what she said was kind of surprising, is that it's really different from just stepping back and doing a hypothetical study because you really find out what people care about and what drives them and what their limitations are on, you know, how long they're okay with being out of power. So um, she thought that was a huge component of it. They were also, as Sammy said, looking at a lot of different factors, a lot of different technologies, but also with a lot of different outputs on health impacts, air quality, workforce, in addition to reliability and greenhouse gases. So it was very complicated modeling. And the models don't always talk to each other. So you have to make sure that they're all aligned and tweaking one little piece on what you're trying to get out of it can just throw everything else off. So it's a very sophisticated study. It's really worth looking at and certainly check out the videos. And, and you know, on the, on the point about air quality and people caring about that, I mean, a big part of that in the study was that there are these four uh, these four gas-fired power plants within the Los Angeles basin that have, you know, really been uh, significant workhorses for, for LADWP. And um, Mayor Garcetti had already committed uh, a couple of years ago to closing down three of them on schedule, which means later in the 2020s, essentially. And there was this uh, this one other in the in the San Fernando Valley in a you know largely Latino community, um, you know lots of low income residents surrounding this that uh, recently had a, this big gas leak that went uh, unreported by DWP for like more than a year. They knew about it but didn't tell anybody, and so that you know that that I think drove you know uh, even more activism about you know really people wanting to shut down all of the in basin gas. So I, I think that was a major contributor to why they you know came out with some of those scenarios and the way that they they did in that study. Um, one other point about DWP, you know, they. I liked what you said about them being an island and being different, and and just two other thoughts on that. One is that one advantage that they have is that they already have a lot of transmission. I mean, over the decades, they've built out transmission to you know Palo Verde Nuclear in Arizona and Intermountain Coal in Utah and Mojave Coal in Nevada, and so they actually have a lot of lines that are either currently you know not being fully utilized. Um, or you know, in, in the future, you know, more the, the last coal plant, which is still operating, shuts down. Uh, you know, will, will be less than fully utilized. So I think they're, you know, they have it somewhat better than other utilities. Not that they won't need any new transmission, but they they've got some to work with. Um, they are. They did just uh, last week join the energy imbalance market in the West. Um, so they're not 
uh, you know, they're not totally, totally islanded, but yeah, they're not, you know, they're their own balancing authority and, and are mostly separate. So the modeling clearly shows that a state like California can do this and do it at a reasonable cost. What are the things that could throw it out of whack? I mean, what are the things that would drive up costs or impact reliability? The flags you're watching, Sammy, what are they? Well, um, right. I mean, the the big thing that's happening now in California, and as we've referred to, this is what happened last summer. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, the, the deck curve has really sort of come home to roost here where, you know, we've, we've already for several years now been, you know, just you know, export you know, exporting more and more to other balancing authorities during the middle of the day. At times, you know, paying other states to take the solar out of our hands uh, when we have too much of it in the middle of the day. Good problem to have, right? Uh, but then there, you know, there come these you know hot summer evening hours, and they're getting hotter, and uh, you know the solar is is ramping down, and we don't have the battery capacity ramped up yet. Um, and, and, you know, that's what's causing this tension where, uh, you know, we had this shortfall last summer and there were all sorts of reasons for the shortfall. Um, you know, some of it is, is, you know, a lot of gas has retired. There were plants that were, you know, derated because of the heat. Uh, I mean, you guys talked about this on, on the energy gang, I know. So, but, but, I mean, but that, that really is the big thing. It's, you know, it's solving for, you know, what do you do during these, you know, really quick ramp downs of solar and, uh, you know, how, how far can batteries get you and, uh, to what extent are you going to need other stuff, um, and then the, you know, the wildfire situation is, is another big one. I mean, we, you know, we've had with PG&E and also with Edison and, and San Diego Gas and Electric, you know, this need for public safety power shutoffs is the, the term of art where, uh, you know, in order to prevent lines from igniting wildfires, which is becoming a worse and worse problem, we, we shut the electricity off. So I, I mean, I think those are the big two. It's like, okay, if we're going to be running our whole society on the electric grid, especially if we're going to, you know, do transport in buildings, it's like, it just it, it becomes higher and higher stakes where, you know, even if you have the power go out for a couple of hours for a couple hundred thousand people, which is basically what happened last August. I mean, it was nothing compared to the outages in Texas. But you get a situation like that, it becomes a political, uh, you know, a political nightmare. And we have a history of this in California. I mean, people still remember the energy crisis 2000, 2001, which, you know, much worse than anything we've seen now. But it it continues to haunt, uh, you know, decision makers in the state of California. I mean, and we we have a governor who's going to be on a recall election now. We previously had a governor who was recalled with one of the, you know, the main factors being a crisis on the electric grid. Um, so I, I think those are the those are the main things I'm I'm watching and sort of how the you know the grid sphere intersects with the political sphere. You talked about the political stakes of reliability, which I think extend far beyond California as well, because every story now is a national story. Everything feeds into national politics. And so if you have something that goes terribly wrong in California for whatever reason, even if it's not the fault or the full fault of clean energy, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, a wildly out of control story um, it, it, that could potentially shift national politics around around climate and energy. So the stakes are clearly high for the climate. They're high for the health of California's grid and energy system, but they're also high for the state of national politics. Yeah, I honestly think that Biden coming out in a big way with his plan maybe gives California a little bit of air cover because he has some pretty big goals too. I definitely think that's true. I also think just, you know, that that Biden having this 2035 goal rather than the, you know, 100% on the grid rather than the 2045 that's been in vogue California and and elsewhere, um, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about is about, you know, all the challenges California faces for 2045 and then Biden's coming in with 2035. So, 
you know, very possibly that that's, you know, better from a climate perspective and very possibly it's doable. But for all of the, you know, the folks in, in state office in California who are like, uh, you know, running themselves frantic trying to figure this out, figure this out, it, it definitely ratchets it up and not further. So, Sammy, do experts you talk to believe the state can hit these targets without actually breaking too many things? Generally, yes. Um, but it depends who you ask and it depends what year you're talking about. I mean, L- L.A., you know, had its study with NREL where they said 2035 is doable. Uh, you know, the state study said 2045 is doable. But I mean, we've never done any of this stuff before. So, um, you know, kind of hard to answer that. And a lot of it has to do with the, uh, you know, the land use battles, which I know we're going to get into. We're going to take a brief pause here to talk about our supporter of the Energy Gang, and that supporter is Aurora Solar. Aurora Solar develops the software tools to help solar grow. Did you know that solar is expected to top 100 gigawatts in the U.S. this year? That's enough to power almost 20 million homes. And even more impressively, that number is expected to quadruple in the next 10 years. So if you want to join a winning team in technology that is booming because of the renewable energy revolution, head on over to Aurora Solar's career page and apply to one of the dozens of fully remote roles they have open across the company. You'll be joining an organization that was voted a best place to work in 2021 while building the digital platform that powers the future of the solar industry. Learn more at aurorasolar.com slash energygang. That's aurorasolar.com slash energygang. Let's go to a topic now that Sammy alluded to at the end of the first segment, and that is public lands. It is going to take a lot of investment, difficult choices, and grit to hit California's zero carbon goals. It's also going to take a lot of land. According to an analysis from Dr. Jesse Jenkins, a friend of the show, uh, and his team at Princeton University, we're going to need an area the size of California for renewable energy projects if we want a net zero electricity system nationally by 2050. In California itself, that could mean building a ton of projects on formally protected lands. In the weeks before Trump left the White House, his team opened up vast tracts of federal lands to energy projects, including solar and wind in California deserts. It is part of a years-long effort within the Trump administration to dismantle protections of uh, federal lands. And it could put the Biden team in somewhat of a dilemma. How do they balance a historic build-out of wind and solar farms with renewed protection of public lands? So what do we know about conflicts and alliances and how they might play out based on California's experience? Um, Catherine, first to you on this, what policies for energy extraction on public lands did Trump enact during his time in the White House and on his way out the door? Yeah, Trump basically rolled back everything that President Obama had done and more. So he shrunk even more the protections for lands of all kinds and water too, and then said, and everything's open to oil and gas. At the very last minute when he was leaving, he said, oh, and also renewables. <laughs> but that, but it was still so much more about opening up to oil and gas. And to be clear, Department of Interior has a ton of lands and Bureau of Land Management is full of people from the oil and gas industry. I mean, that's what they do is, um, is extraction on public lands. So what are we talking about in terms of size, scope, when we're talking about public lands? Yeah, Department of Interior manages 500 million acres, uh, a fifth of the land in the United States. There are 422 national parks, almost 130 national monuments, almost 570 wildlife refuges. It's 20% 
of the U.S. emissions, 12% from natural gas, 24% of oil, and 43% of coal. They produce a billion barrels in 2020 alone, and it's only like 1% of wind and almost no solar. So it is a huge footprint. If you looked at our lands and emissions from those lands as part of, as a country, it would be the fifth largest in the world. Sammy, how did the Trump team's policies intersect with California and the renewable energy industry. How is this coming to your reporting doorstep? So you, you referred to this uh, briefly in your, your opening comments here, this this issue with opening up lands in, in California and mostly in the desert here. Um, you know, this is this is a, a, a battle that's sort of been playing out for uh, for quite a while here because we, you know, we did have, you know, pretty big growth in wind and solar talk starting about a decade ago. Um, you know, there's been this sort of battle between conservation and renewables here where, uh, you know, as you've had developers go out and say, okay, I want to go, you know, build in this spot and, and that spot and here and there, you've, you know, interestingly had quite a bit of pushback um, from environmental groups who traditionally have been focused on, you know, protecting landscapes, protecting desert tortoises, protecting Joshua trees, you know, hawks, eagles, um, and then also pushback from uh, tribal governments uh, because so much of the you know the land here in the desert and, and really across the west and across the country is you know even if it's not you know official tribal reservation land today these are historic landscapes that are you know sacred to indigenous peoples and were you know they're still used for a lot of traditional purposes so you you had this tension start to build you had during the Obama administration the government in California and the federal government. Um, get together and and come up with something called the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan, which was basically this, you know, large land use planning effort across like 10 million acres, really huge area. I mean, you know, 10 million acres, it, it's a number, but it's it's really, really big um, to figure out, okay, what are the spots where it's going to be okay to put solar and wind and what are the, you know, the landscapes that we and, and ecosystems that we really need to preserve and, and not grade over. Um, and, and this came out at the end of the Obama administration. Ultimately, out of the 10 million acres, they, they picked out about 400,000 of them and said, these are going to be our development focus zones. We're going to streamline, you know, renewables permitting and, you know, really incentivize developers to put their stuff here. And we're going to, you know, hold off most of most of the rest. Um, that was a compromise that the conservationists liked a lot. Uh, the renewable energy companies were not especially stoked about it. Um, and then at the beginning of the Trump administration, as you alluded to, um, Interior came in and said, "Actually, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna blow this up and do it again, and maybe we'll help renewables in the process." And then they didn't say anything for three years. And at the very, very last minute, like in you know December, January, just a few months ago, they said, "Okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna you know, double or triple the amount of land that that is open to renewables here." Well, they didn't. They didn't really do anything for streamlining. Streamlining. They so it wasn't all that helpful necessarily. Biden came out immediately and then overturned that and, and set things back to the status quo. So I guess the moral of this story, though, is that there is this really significant tension here that's going to continue to exist where you have the Biden administration talking about, you know, we want to build a lot more renewables on public lands. They've set numerical targets for this. Um, you know, you have them saying we want to cut back on oil and gas extraction, extraction and turn our public lands towards renewables. But Anywhere you try to build a solar or wind farm in the Western United States, just about, uh, especially if it's on public lands, there's going to be a fight over it. Um, there's going to be a fight potentially with conservationists. There's going to be a fight with tribes, or there's going to be a fight with, you know, rural residents who don't want their view sheds to be changed. Um, it's a it's a really big thing, and I think has sort of gone under the radar nationally. And my you know my experience in California has been that. 
you know, if we start to have this kind of build out where, you know, as the Princeton study you referred to, like, you know, 225,000 square miles for, you know, solar and wind nationally, like this is this is going to start to become a serious issue that needs to be resolved. It feels like things are only going to intensify, as you said, you've got these new policy pressures enacted by California, which we discussed. You have the Biden team with really ambitious national expansion goals, but also kind of an internal desire to protect more lands and roll back some of the Trump administration's policies. You have um, Deb Holland, who's the Interior Secretary, who is um, a member of the uh, Laguna Pueblo tribe, who is, I think, going to bring a renewed sensitivity to um, indigenous peoples on these lands and how they might be impacted by these projects. Um, I think they've kind of historically been ceremoniously included in these negotiations, but my sense is that they'll be taken a lot more seriously. And the uh, you, you just have... A, much greater climate pressures. I mean, we have to expand renewable energy development very, very fast over the next decade. And so these pressures, uh, these these colliding factors seem like they'll only get stronger. I, I think so too. And, and, you know, I don't mean to say from, you know, that, they're, that, that all environmentalists out here in the West don't want to build big solar and wind. I mean, most of the, you know, Sierra Club, NRDC, EDF, Nature Conservancy, I mean, you know, they're they're all about, you know, what they call smart from the start planning and, and stuff like what California, you know, did with, with that desert plan of, you know, figure out the best places. And it's also not to say not all, you know, all tribes are, you know, against renewables. I mean, there are a lot of tribes, you know, in the Navajo Nation where they're trying to transition away from coal. There are, you know, efforts underway right now to, to partner with Los Angeles, for instance, to build to build solar. And, and you know, there are plenty of, of people who live in these rural communities that want to see the economic benefits from these projects, but it's, but it's not everyone um, and and there are going to be there are going to be fights here. I think just about uh, just about everywhere. Catherine, how do you expect this to play out under the Biden administration? A lot of competing priorities here, right? So there are a few things that Interior is doing right now, and I'll dive into the first one in just a second. But it's really pausing. Uh, oil and gas leases. So they've paused that. The second thing is doubling offshore wind. They've just done huge announcements to on offshore wind and issuing those permits. The third is starting a civilian con- climate corps that gets people on the ground working and helping on these lands. And the fourth is really centering every, everything on equity and environmental justice. Now on the leasing, so the royalties policy has not changed since 1979, and it's really not adequate to accommodate for what's happening on our public lands. And remember, our, the taxpayers of this country, the U.S. American population, is the shareholders to all of these lands that that we collectively own as a country. And the royalty policy is has not been received. So we're not getting what we are due from that policy in the first place. So I think you first have to address, or at least in a parallel track, have to address what's happening on oil and gas and all the fossil fuels and the extraction that's happening on our public lands, and then be really thoughtful about renewables. And so do renewables smartly, but you really have to deal with the legacy projects there that have also created a lot of economic development, but they're also causing a much greater environmental degradation, which then impacts the economy as well. Yeah, and on the on the fossil fuel leasing, I mean, one thing that I find amazing is just one how far it's come in just the last few years, where this has sort of become, you know, at the very least, ending new leases has become sort of orthodoxy in the, you know, in the Democratic Party. I, 
I mean, I, I first started writing about Keep It in the Ground like five or six years ago, and that was when Obama was pursuing, you know, all of the above, um, you know, as an energy strategy and ramping up, you know, bragging about ramping up oil and gas leasing. And so, um, you know, it's definitely we've come a long way where it's now at the point where it's an argument about how far to go. Do we end all, you know, does the administration want to end all new leases or can they stop issuing permits to, are they going to reform the royalty rates or are they going to, you know, do do other things? Um but 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 it's but it's still yeah I mean you you mentioned this earlier like within these agencies some of this stuff is so entrenched like I did a story in 2016 about how uh, Terry Tempest Williams the you know renowned environmental you know writer based in Utah um, showed up at a, an oil and gas lease auction by BLM and tried to buy a lease you know to symbolically you know protect it and not develop oil and gas. And the argument made against her was, uh, well, no, we're not going to give you this lease because you're not going to give taxpayers a fair return because you're not planning to develop it. And it's like, yeah, that's the, you know, meanwhile, they're, you know, selling all of these bargain basement leases non-competitively and, you know, letting companies sit on them for years and years. And, and, you know, five years later, even as we stretch into the Biden administration, now Terry is still appealing that and hasn't gotten an answer from BLM. So, you know, Biden has some ambitious stuff there, but also like you do need to, you know, start to think about you know, the, the sort of culture at these agencies. Well, and I would like to mention that um, my business partner, Isaac Brown, runs the Business Coalition for Conservation and Climate. And this is a group of businesses, innovative companies that are having a hard time attracting workers to places like Palo Alto that are too expensive and a huge piece of attracting talent, which is basically an arms race to get the best people out of the best schools to come and work for them, is recreation and access to parks and federal lands. And so they believe that this is a huge economic driver for US innovation is to protect these lands. And I find that fascinating that the business enterprise would believe that for all these innovative technology companies that want to attract good talent. So there are a couple of things in policy that we could work on. One is um, Congressman Lowenthal from California um, offered a bill that mandates reporting of admission. So this is just first like shining a light on what are we doing, whether it's CO2 or methane. Let's quantify. This is a blind spot right now. What, what are we actually doing? And it's called the Transparency and Energy Production Act. So that would actually look at what are we doing to our lands and waters and try to quantify it. The second bill is going to be reintroduced. It was introduced in the last session, and it's Mike Levin, again from California, and it's called the Public Land Renewable Energy Development Act. And that is supported by bipartisan group of renewable energy companies, sports people, conservation groups. It's got 30, it had 39 co-sponsors. And it's really about how do you do this? How do you develop public lands for renewables in a very thoughtful way? Um, and really prioritizing lower conflict priority areas, ensuring that wildlife and species are protected, that people, you know, it's, it's sensitive to the people that live there and the cultures. Um, so there are ways we can do this with federal policy. And it'll be interesting to see if we can do that in a align with the Biden administration at the same time. One thing that I'm really curious about on the recreation standpoint and with bills like that is just how the, you know, how the renewables push on public land intersects with the recreation. Like, you know, me personally, as a, you know, as a hiker, when I'm out, you know, in in various landscapes in California in the West, it's like, I, I think it's super cool when I can see, you know, wind turbines on a, you know, on a hilltop or, a, you know, solar farm out on, you know, out on the horizon, like just because I write about that stuff and think it's neat. On the other hand, you know, it's like I know there are people who, you know, really don't want to see any human infrastructure of any kind when they're, you know, going in and recreating in these rural places. So I'm, I, I'm curious how those forces interact. You know, also curious the interaction with this, you know, 30 by 30 policy um, that Joe Biden has endorsed this, um, you know, 
growing idea of, of protect 30% of America's lands and waters by 2030, which is something that Governor Newsom in California has signed on to as well. And, you know, and there's a climate argument for that. It's, you know, protect forests and wetlands and grasslands and, you know, soils that sequester carbon. And, and that's just, you know, it's another one of these interesting nexuses of, you know, trying to make sure you're building smart and in the right places where you're, you know, not actually, uh, you know, uh, carving up landscapes that, uh, you know, could be really useful for climate and other purposes. Yeah, currently, U.S. federal forests um, are 10% of the nation's carbon absorbers. So it's got huge potential. And if you look at what they're calling the blue carbon system that includes oceans, wetlands, and sinks also, you could have huge potential there. Yeah, so clearly this will become a flashpoint, but there are ways uh, to diffuse it. And the other wrinkle is something that we talked about on this show, and Sammy, you've written about, which is there's new modeling showing that a net zero grid could be $500 billion cheaper by building out a lot more distributed solar and batteries. And we're just in a very different technological environment today than we were under the Obama administration. And it means we just have more to work with. And so in theory, we don't need as much centralized renewable energy. I mean, the models, the models differ. They all clearly show we need a ton of centralized development. But there's a strong case to be made that you could work your way into a policy that encourages more distributed energy and you could get to the net zero grid cheaper. So I think there's lots of ways around this, both in sort of policy construction and through new technologies. I agree. And I, you know, I, I think that the, the study that you referenced that I wrote about, about, you know, nearly $500 billion in savings from a, you know, a really big rooftop and local solar build out, like that, that still found a need for uh, 1500 gigawatts of, of, you know, big solar and wind by the middle of the century. And that's compared to the, you know, the Princeton net zero America, they had like two to 3000 gigawatts. So, you know, the same, same order of magnitude and both very large, but but yeah, I mean, to the extent that people are, you know, want to make sure that public lands are protected and that conservation values are contributing to climate resilience, like the more you can do at a distributed scale, the less that is a problem or a conflict. We're going to round the show out with a topic that has been top of mind for us, and that is Biden's infrastructure plan. It is a, quote, once in a generation plan that was just released to reconstruct America. That's how the president characterizes $2 trillion proposal to fix the decaying foundation of this country. And that's not actually hyperbole. For years, the American Society of Civil Engineers has been giving America's infrastructure a near failing grade, saying we need $4 trillion in spending by the middle of this decade on water and sewage systems, public transit, bridges, airports, communication systems, the electric grid, so on and so forth. Biden's master plan embraces that scope entirely and infuses it with climate resilient planning. By all accounts, if enacted, it would rival the economic impact of Roosevelt's New Deal or Johnson's Great Society. It includes a trillion dollars in spending explicitly on clean energy. And as Catherine pointed out in a previous episode, that is greater than the entire economic recovery package passed after the 2008 financial collapse, not just the renewable energy portion, but the entire package itself. So what comes next for turning this historic policy aspiration into historic action? Um, I was I was hoping to have, we've talked about the broad brushstrokes of this plan, and I was hoping to now go through the plan and pick out some of the things that jumped out to us. Um, before I get there, Catherine, just as a whole, does this plan square with 
Biden's campaign messaging? Like, is this the plan progressives hoped for? Oh, wait, those are two different questions. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it does align with his campaign message, for sure. I think um, the interesting thing is that there are a lot of people to the left of this who really think that $2.3 trillion over 10 years isn't enough, that we need a lot more. And that's fine, because now Biden looks like the centrist that he sort of is characterized as. And then the Republicans just look like they don't want to play. So um, I don't think that's a bad thing that it's at $2.3 trillion over 10 years. Um, I see this as all the stuff for all the people. I mean, it is everything. It is super holistic. It is. It views everything sort of that we have to deal with on a daily basis as part of the infrastructure of our lives. And I think... That is so important. And it does this in, in a way that's very much about investing, investing in who we are and where we want to go. It's spread out over years. I, I was invited to a small event with Gina McCarthy, who heads up the domestic climate policy. There were about six of us there. And um, I, I told them that I thought this was great systems thinking. This was all about how do you stitch everything together in our economy and not just single out technology by technology, but make everything come together in a way that really addresses not just climate, but also social, racial inequity issues, economic challenges, and all of those pieces, workforce, um, access issues in, in one document that really shows leadership that can then be given to Congress as really a roadmap for what we should be doing. So what jumped out at you, Catherine, as a specific priority or specific pieces that reflect that thinking? It's hard. You know, you, what are you going to say? Which child do you love the best? Right? Because I work on so many pieces of this. Um, I was super jazzed that the accelerator was in it, which is something I've been working on. It's like what, the what's National, the accelerator? It's the National Climate Bank. Basically, it's now called the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator, and it's a nonprofit that would sit outside of government and just deploy, deploy, deploy in about seven different sectors. It's it's funded at a hundred billion in the House and Senate bills, and it was it was included in the Biden plan. And I was super, super excited about that. I was also just really happy that energy efficiency was everywhere. That's something that is never seen of, even though it's the first fuel, it's not the first thing anybody ever talks about. So I love that it's that it's embedded in every single aspect of this, some form of efficiency, because that will then make things cost less to do more. Sammy, did anything specifically jump out at you? Well, um, I mean, sticking with my uh, my Western California-centric theme here, I mean, Catherine already mentioned earlier this Civilian Climate Corps, which is a, you know, a $10 billion investment proposed that, you know, seemingly would go a long way towards, um, you know, paying down the maintenance backlog in national parks and helping, you know, build climate resilience and resilience to fire and drought and whatnot on, on public lands. But the, I guess the one that I would also pull out is um, this proposed $16 billion investment in plugging abandoned oil and gas wells. Um you know that that's a huge problem nationwide, but particularly in in the West. There's been, you know, I think there are two or three million, by some counts, of these you know wells that are abandoned or in danger of becoming abandoned. They're, um, you know, they're enormous methane emitters. A lot of these wells are these you know super emitters that are responsible for an incredibly disproportionate uh, chunk of of methane uh, going into the atmosphere. There was just a really good story that uh, Grist and the Texas Tribune did for those who haven't seen it, looking at this problem in. Uh, New Mexico and Texas specifically in finding more than 100,000 um, idle oil wells in those states, uh, oil and gas, most of it in the Permian Basin. And that's, you know, and they're looking at a cleanup bill of, you know, billions and billions of dollars there, uh, potentially, or 
maybe not billions and billions, but a, at least a, a billion, it looks like. Um, and, you know, nationally, I've seen estimates of, you know, it could be hundreds of billions to resolve this problem if, if you know, more of these companies go out of business and don't pay the bill themselves like they're supposed to. Um, so, you know, the $16 billion, I've seen it described as sort of a down payment where it's, you know, they know it doesn't really solve the whole problem, but it has the potential to help start. Um, and also they're framing it as, you know, this is something that's going to put hundreds of thousands of, you know, oil and gas workers back to work, uh, you know, as those industries decline, um, you know, cleaning up what what's left behind. So, you know, uh, to be seen if that's all going to work out as as planned and really does what it's supposed to. But that would that would certainly be a pretty big deal out out west, especially if it passed. I like that proposal for plugging oil and gas wells because it achieves a couple of different things. One is that you can use existing infrastructure to create jobs for an energy and climate benefit. And I've also seen proposals uh, and studies around how you take old coal mines and turn them into, uh, you know, geo geothermal district heating systems and use flooded mines the you know, the, the steady state temperatures of, of water underground to create some kind of um, district heating system. I know they're experimenting with that in Germany. And it's possible that we could do that in places like West Virginia and Ohio um, and, and throughout Appalachia. So I love there's a lot of jobs that you can create just in plugging those wells. And there's a potentially a, a greater benefit by figuring out how you take old coal mines and get another energy benefit out of them. The other is like if you're explicitly benefiting coal country or areas where oil and gas is prominent, then you can bring more conservative lawmakers on board and create a lot of jobs in these areas that have shed a lot of jobs. You know, on that last point about getting conservatives on board and, and you know, Republicans in these communities, like, I'm, I'm still inherently skeptical of, of that. I mean, maybe Joe Manchin likes this, but I mean, I think the reality is that, uh, <laughs> the reality is that sometimes reality doesn't matter so much these days. I mean, the people in those communities are, you know, inherently against, it seems, anything that would even imply that, uh, you know, oil and gas jobs, traditional oil and gas jobs are going away. So, you know, even if you'd think that someone like a, you know, a, a Steve Daines, for instance, um, you know, might might be excited to put oil and gas folks back to work, like, I, I, I you know, I, I'd be skeptical because I think what he's hearing from these industries is, you know, that they're against anything that even implies that they're going anywhere, which which this does. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think perhaps my take is a little overly optimistic that somehow this one thing could sway a bunch of middle of the road Democrats or Republicans. But all the same, I think fairly important and, and, and could have some bargaining power politically. The other piece uh, that I really like in, in thinking about using existing infrastructure is the investments in new transmission. So they, they put in um, the proposal for a tax credit for new transmission development. They create an agency for approving uh, transmission at the Department of Energy. But they also are identifying current rights of way that could support transmission projects and taking a much deeper look at how you could create a frictionless or, or lower friction process for developing transmission lines. Because what's very clear in this conversation is that we, we, no matter what direction we take, we need a lot of centralized renewable energy development, which means we still need a lot of transmission, which will be very difficult to build out. So the fact that they are thinking about what this build out would look like using lands and existing industrial sites where you could put transmission lines is particularly insightful. 
what I thought was particularly interesting about the big inclusion of transmission was just, um, you know, knowing how things went down with the Recovery Act 10 years ago. Um, yeah, I think it was Russell Gold's book, Superpower, where I, I learned this, that there was, you know, discussion internally in the Obama administration of, you know, making transmission a, a big part of the funding they were rolling out then. And they just decided it was, you know, too, too controversial, was going to be too difficult and too big a fight. And they didn't want to get into that. So, I guess it, it took 10 years, but we're, we're at a point now where it seems there's no, uh, there's no avoiding it. Yeah, well, Michael Skelly, who is the uh, CEO of Clean Line Energy Partners, the company that was trying to develop that ambitious uh, project from the Midwest down to the Southeast, he, he t- tells this story, I think, in, in Russell Gold's book, and, and I interviewed him and he told the same story, of walking around the Department of Energy with his proposal in hand, like not sure who he was supposed to talk to. He basically just like sat in the halls of the DOE trying to get meetings with people and they kept shifting him around, moving him around, and they didn't know what to do with him. And uh, so hopefully there will be a an office where people like him can land with <laughs> with real proposals. Yeah, I love that not everything is going to what used to be called shovel-ready projects. So there's, you know, part of this is going to quick deployment, but another part is like, let's invest in the future and where do we want to go and how do we incentivize innovation and do it in a way that is equitable to all people. So giving a lot of money to HBCUs and other organizations that are going to allow women and people of color to be much more part of the solution. And HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, there's $40 billion potentially going to actually $50 billion um, from the National Science Foundation going to um, different research agencies across the like research hubs across the country. And I think half of that money would go to historically black colleges and universities, which, again, is sorely needed and a really good example of how you take these broad declarations about equity and turn them into actionable policies. All right, let's wrap it up. I know Catherine has meetings and Sammy has to get a newsletter out. So uh, what is capturing our attention here? Sammy, you go first. What is what is your free electron? So I uh, I read an interesting story this week. There's been a couple of stories written about it, about a, uh, a new study out of uh, UC Merced and UC Santa Cruz looking at the potential benefits of covering... Uh, aqueducts, you know, these big water canals in California with solar panels. Um, you know, this is something that's been, you know, talked about and speculated on for a while. It was a, you know, a study in nature sustainability this week um, with, with some funding from from NRG. And the, the main finding here was that they said that we could get like 13 gigawatts of uh, solar in California from covering, you know, hundreds of miles of these, these aqueducts and um, you know, also reduce evaporation. The estimate they have is like, you know, saving enough water to irrigate like 50,000 acres of, uh, you know, farmland, which, you know, is, is a, you know, a you know, non-zero fraction and would be, you know, somewhat significant in California where every drop counts. I was a little bit skeptical when I first saw coverage of this because when I've, you know, when I've asked folks about this in the past and I've never done a thorough look that, you know, when I've asked the various, you know, operators of these canals, the two answers I typically get are, well, you know, transmission is a challenge because it's, you know, tons and tons of distributed stuff for hundreds of miles. And then also that, you know, we're worried that it interferes with maintenance of, uh, you know, of these big water projects. Um, but interestingly, the state water resources department put out a skeptical statement about this, and then they kind of pulled back on it and instead substituted it with a much more optimistic statement and said, actually, even though we you know, the first time we came out and said, oh, it's expensive and it's going to be an, be an issue for maintaining the canals. Actually, we've taken a closer look at the 
the study and we're, we're interested in it and we're excited to learn more and want to think about this. So that, that got me thinking, I'm probably going to write about this, um, write about this in the next couple of weeks. So look, look out for that. But, uh, yeah, I just, what I found is that anytime I like share anything on social media about, you know, putting solar over bodies of water of any kind, people get really, really excited. Like it sparks people's imagination in a way that, uh, not a ton of other, you know, wonky energy things, uh, do some, I'm excited to finally learn more and actually read the whole text of this study, which I admittedly have not done yet. Catherine, what is your free electron? Oh, you know, I'm going to talk about FERC, y'all. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, now that it is under new leadership with Chairman Rich Glick um, and some really great new commissioners like Allison Clements um, and Mark Christie from Virginia is also part of the of the cadre there. it is doing so much. They're doing so many technical workshops. People should just go on to the website and click on news and events and you can look up all the workshops they're doing. They create an office of public participation to allow more people to participate, not just like fancy FERC attorneys. Um, they're talking about all of the markets and resource adequacy. They're looking at electrification and the grid of the future. Um, they actually issued an order um, order. 2222A that further um, delineated that demand response actually is part of distributed energy resources, which made me very happy. Um, So they're just doing a lot. Um, They're very, very busy. And I think they're going to get a lot done under Chairman Glick's leadership. My free electron is something I actually saw you tweet out, Sammy, which is a a new report. It is the, the flip side of what we have been discussing around, you know, aspirational investments in clean energy infrastructure. We previously discussed how the first COVID stimulus impacted big corporations and gave tax benefits to a lot of uh, oil and gas and coal companies. And a new analysis from an organization called Bailout Watch, which was funded by Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, shows that um, 77 large fossil fuel extraction companies got $8.24 billion in tax benefits from the COVID stimulus, but they laid off 60,000 workers over the last year a very stark reminder of why we need a completely different way of thinking about these kinds of government investments, which is what we're discussing with this new infrastructure package. All right, that's the end of the show. Sammy Roth, staff writer with the LA Times and author of the Boiling Point newsletter. Thanks a lot for joining us. This has been fun. Thanks very much for having me on. So how can people find your newsletter? I'll put a link in the show notes. Yep, it's, it's real easy. Go to latimes.com slash boiling point, uh, enter your email, and you'll uh, get it in your inbox every Thursday. It's worth it. It's worth every nickel. <laughs> Indeed. We use uh, your writing to inform this show, so thanks for it. Catherine, thank you. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Thank you all for listening. Really appreciate you being here. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Wood McKenzie. You can hit us up on social media to suggest story ideas or comment on this show. And give us a rating and review. Anywhere you get your podcast is super helpful. So thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. 